Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Your campaign and many of your supporters have argued that Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, has not been neutral in her position as chair. Your campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, in particular, has been very critical. She is being challenged right now in a primary by Tim Canova. He is a law professor who opposes the Pacific trade deal that you oppose. He supports you. He's already raised $1 million. You've been calling for a revolution in Florida. Are you with Wasserman Schultz, or are you, or are you with her opponent? Well, clearly I favor uh, her opponent. Uh, his views are much closer to mine uh, than is uh, as, uh, Wasserman Schultz's. Uh, and let me also say this, in all due respect to the current uh, chairperson, if elected president, she would not be reappointed uh, to be chair of the DNC. I'm used to giving this presentation to academic audiences, so it's really a pleasure to be here with you. I want to thank Ellen Brown for putting this together and Mark Armstrong. I've been a big fan of Ellen's for years, um, ever since her uh, web of debt. Um, I think it's so important here to understand the forces that have undermined our democracy, undermined our economic prosperity, and are destroying the middle class and harming the poor so much. And of course, the importance of understanding our own roles our own responsibilities as citizens, as agents of change, not alone, but acting together. There's a recurring theme in American political history, um, the political struggle for control over the sovereign power of money, played out over the structure and governance of the central bank and the issuance of money. Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, both Roosevelt's, and Kennedy in his own way, we're all avatars who understood the dangers of delegating such broad powers to a private cartel. Welcome to Politicking. I'm Larry King. Last weekend, Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigned among controversy as chair of the Democratic National Committee, a casualty of the leaked emails that were hacked from DNC servers. But she remains an honorary chair of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, and she is also still an incumbent candidate for Florida's 23rd congressional district. Her primary challenger for that seat is law professor Tim Canova, who was endorsed by the former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. While the federal investigation into the hacked emails and subsequent WikiLeaks dump that led to Wasserman Schultz's resignation continues, Tim Canova has also filed a complaint with the FEC alleging that the former DNC chair illegally used her position to spy on his campaign against her. So today we are talking to Tim Canova, who is running for office in Florida. Welcome, Tim. Nice to be with you, Tina. So recently you decided to leave the Democratic Party and you're now running as an independent, which is a pretty big decision. Let's talk a little bit about what led you to this place and why you decided to uh, leave the Democratic Party after everything that's happened this past year and a half. Well, in many ways, I think the party pushed it. Uh, it was clear that not anything was changing in terms of uh, where the party stood on my campaign and on taking sides against me. Uh, I'd been a, a member of the Democratic Party for most of my life. I had a uh, when I first registered to vote at the age of 18, I registered Democrat. 
and I worked for a couple of years on Capitol Hill for a Democrat, the late U.S. Senator Paul Songus. And over the years, have worked on a number of Democratic campaigns and volunteered and even contributed small amounts of money to some campaigns. So last time around, I ran as a Democrat. I feel like I did my part in trying to push the party in a reform direction by running as a Democrat. And But mm-hmm. this time, uh, there were a lot of frustrations. I think the, the straw that really kind of broke the back that, that uh, led me to, to decide to run as an independent was um, what's been happening with the case of our uh, destroyed ballots from our last race. Right. Uh, we had some questions about the final official count of votes, and we thought it would be best to um, verify the, the vote by inspecting mm-hmm. the ballots. And we put in a public records request uh, in November of 2016. And for more than six months, the supervisor of elections uh, stonewalled us and it forced Mm -hmm. us to file a lawsuit last June. While the lawsuit was pending, the supervisor of elections decided to destroy all the paper ballots. For the purposes of destruction of records, is there a difference between a state and federal election? Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what's the difference? Well, for federal elections, not races, federal elections, the destruction schedule is 22 months. For local elections, the destruction date is uh, 12 months. And, you know, as it relates to this situation, I think the problem is that we had, um, they were destroyed by mistake. Why did you sign a document allowing for the destruction of Mr. Canova's ballots? When I sign, I sign folders filled with information. So I was given a document by Mr. Spencer. That's his responsibility. And that's how I happened to have signed the document. Okay. And you knew that those ballots were the ballots, that those records were the public records that were sought by lawsuit. I did not every line on that document. There were a lot of things listed. I trust my staff. They have the responsibility of giving me information that's correct. And they did destroy them in violation of federal law, state law, the court's authority. Uh, it's right. one of the most outlandish uh, things I've ever seen. And when I reached out uh, and... Uh, to party officials, uh, local party officials in Broward County, in Miami-Dade, and state party officials, and presented them with the evidence. The evidence is clear. The supervisor of elections mm-hmm. uh, admitted in videotape depth that she had destroyed the ballots and that the, she had crea- uh, you know, committed these violations. And I, I could not get a response, any response from any of these party officials. It's That's clear amazing. that it is. It, it was really amazing. It's clear that something like the destruction of all paper ballots uh, just doesn't register with them. They're not going to get involved. Uh, they uh, shield their incumbents from debates. They shower their incumbents mm-hmm. with corporate money. And um, yeah. they block challengers like me from even appearing in public forums. So they've all but basically said, go away, leave us, leave the party. And then, you know, when you actually get up and leave and decide to run as an independent, then they attack you for splitting the party. Yeah. <laughs> it's, right? it's incredible. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. it's, it is incredible. I've seen that argument so many times. 
we don't need you, we don't need your votes, go vote for third party. And then when they lose, it's your fault you split the vote. Why didn't you tow the company light? It's the logic is insane to me. And I did see that video where she fully admitted that she mm-hmm. destroyed destroyed the ballots. And then I there was a now wasn't that part of the conversation that the federal statute was twenty two months and the state yes. was different? Was she trying to sneak some sort of defense in there in that? Um, well, we thought so um, originally, and yet when push came to shove, she had to admit that she knows that the federal standard is 22 months. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. the height of incompetence if the supervisor didn't even know what the standard of retaining ballots were. But her excuse was, well, it was a mistake. We just make mistakes. And <laughs> then she said, you did sign the destruction order that certified that the ballots were not the subject of any pending litigation. While mm-hmm. they actually were the subject of this pending litigation. And her excuse was that she just signs anything that's put in front of her face. Without reading wow. it. Yeah. Without reading it. That's- there, there's been no investigation. And it really makes one feel that there's two systems of justice in this country. If you're rich, you're powerful, or you're politically connected, you could probably get away with, let's say, purging 200,000 citizens off the voting rolls before the New York Democratic primary. Uh, right, as, right. As the Board of Elections did, or destroying ballots in Broward County, or creating scams on the American people like Wall Street did. But if exactly, or, or ballot harvesting. So now we've got groups that are being paid, um, and mainly by Cal Dem. This also happened with John McCain in the Arizona um, his Arizona election as well. But in this last couple of local elections, special elections we've had here in California, they've hired a, a company called Groundworks, and they're paid canvassers. So they go door-to-door doing canvassing. And these are jobs that normally go to volunteers that are excited about the campaign. Well, mm-hmm. you pay these folks, and they, take, they tell the person, we'll, we'll, file, we'll, take, we'll do your ballot for you. We'll fill it out. We're working for so-and-so candidate, and we'll make sure that it gets turned in. These are mail-in ballots. And the reason they were able to do this is we had a, a change in our state law that now that where we went from, it was a little bit more limited scope with who was allowed to turn in a ballot for somebody. So if you have somebody that's elderly or uh, incapacitated in some way, a family member could bring the ballot in. But now they've changed it to anyone can do this. So an absolute total stranger that's being paid by somebody can do it. And that's just opening the door for shenanigans. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. And they don't seem to have a problem with it. And I just think on a very, at a very clear theoretical level, you can see why this is a bad look. And I don't understand how the party that basically tries to say we're for expanding voter rights can turn around and do stuff like this. It's, it's very hypocritical to me. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of hypocrisy in this party. And yeah. people are seeing through it. Yeah, they are. I think you're right. You know, Justice Democrats uh, recently released a report based on some polling they did, and the name of the report was uh, report was the future of the party. And what the report really makes clear is that most independent voters, most voters um, that are either progressive, DSA, Green, whatever, they are they they side mainly with the Democrats, but they choose to stay home when they are not excited about a candidate. And we saw that generally, I think, in the primary with 2016. The biggest mm-hmm. chunk of voters that didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton were the Obama vote voters that stayed home. And I think mm-hmm. this is going to be a continued trend in the party. And I feel like uh, the, the the Democratic leadership, the DNC, the state party chairs, et cetera, 
are, are still having their heads in the sand and they're not seeing that. If they simply ran a better candidate that people were excited about, voters would come out and support that and they would absolutely be winning elections all over the place. Well, I, you're looking at it um, perhaps um, uh, in different terms. Uh, my view is that the Democratic Party has a primary objective, which is to defeat mm -hmm. progressives in primaries, to keep the party corporate owned. Because okay. the party has become a conduit between corporate lobbyist donations and this political consultant um, media uh, class. And their True. secondary objective their secondary objective is to defeat Republicans in general elections, but it's only secondary. Mm -hmm. it, if they can do that, that's okay. fine, but the most important thing is to keep the party corporate. Okay, that's a fair criticism. So what does, what does that, where does that leave progressives? What should we do at this point? Because it's very hard to win. I, I'm all, I voted for independence in my past. I voted for Green Party candidates, and, we'll, and I will continue to do so. And I've also voted for Democrats. I've been a registered Democrat my whole life. And I'm very troubled by this because I feel if we don't build alliances and allies on the left, we, we don't win elections. But the DNC is definitely not, <laughs> they're not running elections to my taste, and I'm not happy with them. So how do we, how do we go about fixing this problem? Uh, I, don't, I don't fault people for leaving the party. I don't, not at all. Well, I, I never have or I haven't uh, criticized folks for leaving the party, and yeah. yet for a long time, I was staying in the party and fighting it out in the party. I think it depends mm -hmm. where um, the challenges are coming from. Uh, Florida is a closed primary state. So um, a Democratic okay. challenger in a closed primary has a very tough road to hoe. In California, you know, it's an open – take a look at one race, for instance. Just as an example, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who's got several opponents. One of them mm -hmm. is Stephen Jaffe, uh, a former burner, discrimination lawyer. And if he should – come in second in the open primary, then it's a one-on-one -on -one face off between him and the incumbent in November. That's right. Um, yeah. I can, I can certainly understand. Uh, maybe there's no reason to leave the party in, in a lot of these races. Uh, I came about very reluctantly and for a number of reasons. I mentioned the ballot destruction. Uh, there's more of a chance the supervisor of elections will still be the supervisor in August when there's a closed primary. Then in November, by then, maybe she'll be, be gone already because of this scandal. Um, and the mm -hmm. idea that the same supervisor who destroyed the ballots in my last election in violation of federal law would still be the supervisor in my next one is a, you know, quite a troubling uh, possibility. Uh, the other yeah. reason I decided to go independent uh, is that at the same time that the party has been blocking me, you see this whole generation of young, young people coming of age politically mm -hmm. And the, the estimates are that 60 to 70% of millennials and younger are non-party affiliation. Uh, they've had it with the lives of both of the major parties. And I think overall, they're about, uh, independents are now about 41% of the electorate, uh, mm -hmm. which is more than either uh, those who identify as Democrat or Republican. So the reality shift uh, since uh, Ralph Nader 18 years ago ran a third-party presidential campaign. At this point, um, running as an independent, uh, you know, I can understand why a lot of folks would be scared off from doing it, but I love the idea that I'll be on the ballot in November and I'll be able to speak to millennials and Gen Xers and uh, libertarians, independents, Democrats, Republicans, Greens, you name it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's the way a democracy should be, where uh, everyone's part of the conversation. 
I agree. Um, I full I full heartedly support that. I think we need more voices, not fewer voices. And given that the DNC is as tone deaf as they are, I don't. I don't blame people for doing this one bit. And that is a big um, difference you're talking about. In California, we often end up with two Democrats at, at, at the final top two places because of the way our system's set up. So maybe a better answer for um, all, the state, all the states to look at is creating a system in which that's the case. I think we would have mm -hmm. better choices of candidates. Is there well, a lot of pushback to that idea in Florida, or, or is there an well, openness to having an open primary? No, it's interesting. After the last race, uh, we formed a, a community uh, action group called Progress for All, which was our campaign mm -hmm. team, uh, uh, slogan. Uh, and uh, we used um, our resources to lobby on all kinds of issues of importance, not just in the district, but statewide. And one of them was open primaries. We were pushing for open primaries for the past two years. And we mm. um, paid for a public opinion survey which showed overwhelming support throughout Florida for open primaries. Super majorities of independents and Democrats and even a majority of Republicans want open primaries yeah. in the state. And uh, we tried to go down the road of collecting petitions to try to get it on um, the ballot as a referendum this November. And then the, the State Constitution Review Commission, uh, which meets every 20 years, uh, took it up and started to consider it. So we put all of our efforts into that. Uh, and the Constitution Review Commission held hearings and got testimony, and it passed several committees. It looked like it was going to be on the ballot, and then suddenly, um, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, and it could have been Debbie yeah. Wasserman Schultz. I, yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard through the grapevine, and um, yeah. it, it was blocked at the very finish line in the final committee. Uh, so Amazing. It is amazing, and this is, you know, again, what the Democrats do. Uh, they want to keep things closed. And uh, I think they only hurt themselves. I think if it were open primaries, mm -hmm. Democrats would do much better. You know, a few years ago, Democrats outnumbered Republicans in the state of Florida by over 750,000. Even today, they outnumber Republicans by over a quarter million, I believe. And yet the Republicans have two-thirds of the state legislative seats, two-thirds of the congressional delegation are Republican. And, 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 and the Democrats are afraid of open primaries, really? It, yeah, it doesn't. No, yeah, I get your point. This is what this is what brings you to the conclusion that they're more concerned with the donor class than they are the constituencies, because there's no yeah. other reasonable explanation for this. So, right. speaking of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, she has taken a lot of money from payday lenders, and payday mm -hmm. lenders prey upon the poor. And we've seen lots of cases in which um, the folks that have had to take these loans end up paying more in fees and interest than they do on the initial loan amount. I mean, it's a pretty gross sort of industry. But first, payday lending is a $46 billion industry in the U.S. About 12 million Americans borrow more than $7 billion annually from over 22,000 storefront locations. But the industry's practices have long been under scrutiny. Special correspondent Andrew Schmertz has the story from South Dakota, part of our ongoing reporting initiative, Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America. Living paycheck to paycheck isn't easy. Sometimes you have to come up with creative ways to relieve the stress. Good way to just live in denial is just throw away your bills, you know. And I can't pay anyway, so. Christy McLaughlin and her husband TJ were getting by on TJ's salary as a manufacturing plant manager here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That was until TJ got sick. I was working the night shift and I was on my feet a lot and I had a couple of wounds start developing on my leg. 
and uh, they were pretty small at first, and then they got infected and just started growing. When TJ went to get treatment, the doctor said it would only take a day, but in fact, he ended up missing a whole week of work. They ended up docking my pay. We were, ended up being short on bills. I panicked, so. So McLaughlin came here, a tidal loan place just a few miles from his home. He says the process was simple and quick. They inspected his car and then handed him $1,200 in cash. He agreed to pay $322 a month for a year. I was making good money. I didn't really foresee a problem paying it back at that time. But then his leg got worse, and he had to go back to the hospital for another week. And on Wednesday of the following week, the HR person called from his job and fired him. And on that day, we pretty much lost everything. But not the loan. After nine months, the total amount they owed grew from $1,200 to over $3,000. That's an annual interest rate of more than 300%. Sort of industry that's obviously in need of regulation, yet she has thwarted that regulation time and time again. Um, it's, yeah. To me, it's a classic quid pro quo sort of a situation. What's, what's your yeah. opinion on that? Well, we've looked into it a lot uh, in the last campaign. Wasserman Schultz, when he was, she was a state legislator here in Florida, helped write the legislation that allows these payday lending companies to charge uh, over 300% interest rates uh, with fees included, wow. I think it's even higher. And she's protected them ever since. She's taken tens of thousands of dollars from this industry. And then who's behind the industry? Who finances the payday loan industry? They've got lines of credit with the biggest Wall Street banks, and Wasserman Schultz has taken mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars from these Wall Street banks. And uh, as recently as 2016, when I was running, she was pushing a Republican bill a Republican bill yeah. that would have prevented the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from regulating payday lenders for a two-year period. And, you know, when you think about it, that is the agenda of the Trump administration now. So, you know, right. she has been a shill for these uh, Wall Street banks and predatory payday lenders. And, you know, that's just one of uh, a number of predatory corporate interests that Wasserman Schultz has been in bed with um, and not representing the people of her district instead representing mm -hmm. these big corporate interests. Yeah, she definitely has a history of that. Um, what are some of the other areas that you differ from Debbie on in, in your platform? Well, you could just, in a way, follow the money. So we don't take any um, PAC money from any corporate or industry uh, interests at all. And Wasserman Schultz has been swimming in it. So she's been taking mm -hmm. money from the private prison companies. And she has right. pushed private detention centers and prisons in the state and in our, our own district in Southwest Ranches, uh, Florida leads the country in private prisons. So having a prison system that is for profit, she's got no problem with it. Uh, she takes money from big pharma, uh, big alcohol, and not surprisingly, she's a drug warrior. She talks about marijuana as a gateway drug, even while she <laughs> takes money from the big companies that have, have fueled the opioid epidemic that's killing over 100 Americans each and every day. Um, fossil fuel companies, and she has been silent on the Sable Trail Pipeline, which is Florida's Dakota Access Pipeline, basically. While environmentalists and activists won their fight to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, a similar battle was getting started in Florida, where activists across the state turned out today to protest the construction of a $3 billion pipeline. 
Critics say the pipeline will threaten the drinking water and ecosystem in the Sunshine State. RT's Marina Pornaya attended a rally in Miami and brings us the latest. Marina, today protests were held in Jacksonville, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami. Why are so many residents expressing opposition and concern? Well, Florida residents, as well as environmental and labor activists, are extremely concerned about the long-term damage the Sable Trail pipeline could have on the quality and safety of the state's drinking water. The pipeline we're talking about will reportedly span an estimated 515 miles across Alabama, Georgia, and Florida to transport fracked gas. 268 miles, the majority of the project, will be in Florida, and critics are concerned the construction could damage the fracked limestone which surrounds the Florida aquifer. Uh, that supplies 60% of Florida's drinking water. Additionally, the $3 billion pipeline is set to run by the Crystal and Suwanee Rivers, two sanctuaries for endangered species. Now, 84,000 residents have signed a petition demanding the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers conduct an environmental impact study and halt construction of the Sable Trail pipeline. Demonstrators at uh, Miami rally I attended told me this issue should be treated as a health threat. My biggest concern is that the pipeline will rupture, it'll contaminate our waters, it won't make for an environmentally safe or sustainable future. And we have a right as citizens to clean water. We have a right to make the choice to move towards clean energy. We're going to have this fracking economy with a 500-mile pipeline to transport fracked gas so that we can export it as liquefied natural gas. So we'll, we'll export our gas to China, perhaps, and we're going to have to import water at some point. It's, it's very terribly short-sighted, and it's based on greed. Sable Trail pipeline protesters are calling on Florida's U.S. Senator Bill Nelson to represent his constituents and help stop construction until the environmental impacts are thoroughly researched. Public polls show the majority of Floridians want more effort placed on uh, alternative, sustainable energy instead of old technology. If solar, for example, became a prime energy source in the state, maybe the construction of oil and gas pipelines wouldn't even be necessary. A 515-mile right. pipeline uh, for frack gas right through uh, sinkhole country in the upper Floridian aquifer. Um, she has um, waffled on fracking while taking a lot of money from those interests. Um, where else? She's been silent on the charter school movement while uh, mm -hmm. the, the districts uh, and the county's uh, public school system just absolutely collapses. Um, so, you know, she's not for Medicare for all. Uh, she uh, takes money from the big private health insurance companies. So really it's industry after industry you see her lining up and pushing them, pushing their interests. And, and that's become her major role here in Florida is to help direct money to corporate uh, funded candidates and to try to block progressives and not just here in her own district but all over the state of Florida. Yeah, I, I'm not happy with her. Um... And I can't believe she was able to pull out that last election, quite frankly, especially given all of the the uh, stuff surrounding the DNC and when she was chair with the primary. I was stunned yes. when she pulled that through. Well, you know, our internal field numbers showed a far different result, and that's why we wanted mm. to verify the vote and inspect the ballots. So I, I don't see her as having a lot of support right. in the district, and we were very shocked at the result as well.
folks can go online to timcanova.com to our issues page, and you'll see that we have a very progressive agenda. And these are yeah. issues I've been writing about for many years as a legal scholar, a law professor. So a jobs for all kind of mm -hmm. program where it would be a, a, a new deal, a green solar kind of new deal that would put people back to work in productive jobs, a Medicare for all system where everyone has coverage, um, and uh, tuition-free higher education, which I'd like to see tied to a service program when young folks mm -hmm. turn 18, if they're able to serve in a hopefully a civilian capacity, whether it's a conservation mm -hmm. program or in the hospitals or schools, and then in return they could get a tuition-free mm. education. That's a solid idea. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your legal background because you've been involved in many issues that have to do with um, finance issues and trade, et cetera. Um, you know, back in the early 80s, you warned, you were one of the first people to warn us about the devastating consequences of deregulating interest rates and lending mm -hmm. standards. And I, this was an area you wrote about. And you also warned about the rise of Wall Street special interest. So this is the early 80s, and I think you were sounding the bell much sooner than a lot of other folks did. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this period of time? Well, I had graduated college uh, studying uh, government and economics and history, and um, uh, it was pretty influenced um, by the economics department. It was a very eclectic one. I went to a small liberal arts college called Franklin and Marshall College. And uh, our advanced macroeconomics class was uh, really a Keynesian economics class. And it opened my eyes to the, uh, the, the need for financial regulation to allow for a full employment economy to actually function properly. That if you have um, an, a financial system that's geared towards uh, speculation, um, investment is not going to go into productive enterprises and bubbles and busts. And, that's essentially the crossroads that uh, this country approached in the early 1980s. And I was working on Capitol Hill uh, by then uh, for, for, as I mentioned, Paul Song, it's a senator from Massachusetts, when Congress was passing uh, some of these interest rate deregulation bills. They passed one in 1978, mm -hmm. another 1980, another 1982. And um, they really threw lending standards out the window completely. Prior to that, uh, while consumers had less choice, you couldn't get adjustable rate mortgages, for instance, there was also a lot more stability, right. financial stability built into the system as a result of that. Um, so I was very critical of that, um, I guess, as they called it, deregulation or liberalization of lending standards. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think you're right. I don't think there was a lot of uh, pushback at that early stage. Yeah, the deregulation takes on a whole other character in the 1990s under the Bill Clinton administration when they start allowing these banks to become too big to fail. They get rid of the Glass-Steagall Act. They deregulate derivatives, so it really creates this global casino economy where the big financial players are able to uh, do major wagers on, on just the housing industry, for instance, to, get, to bet against the market that they themselves had made toxic. Yeah, and in fact, did you not pen an op-ed in 1996 that was opposing Fed Chairman Greenspan's reappointment? I think um, some of the criticism was was rather prescient in this article. Um, can you walk us through your reasoning on that? Yeah. Because Greenspan at that particular time was considered a god by both parties. It's, it's true. And when I wrote that op-ed, it was the top op-ed of the day in January of uh, 1996, I believe. And he was being considered for a reappointment by Bill Clinton to, for another term as Fed chairman. And he was sort of at the height of uh, 
you know, his popularity at that point. He was being called the maestro. I think there was a book that came out by Bob Woodward on Alan Green. That's right. Idol the maestro. And uh, I think uh, me uh, criticizing him so publicly, let's just say, it didn't help my career all that much. Uh, But uh, I was critical of what he was doing. And um, a lot of it, some of it was the actual monetary policy decisions as to ratcheting up rates Mm -hmm. uh, uh, prematurely. But um, an awful lot of the criticism dealt with the role he was playing in deregulating the financial system and then in bailing out the big players. And at that point, you'd seen a big bailout um, associated with the crash of the Mexican peso where the Federal Reserve and the Treasury came in and stabilized things. But they did it in a way that didn't really help the Mexican people. It was just a way to make sure that interest payments kept flowing uh, on Mexican bonds, the Tessa Bono, uh, to big American financial institutions like Fidelity that, that held a lot of those bonds. So you could already see the, the beginning of this sort of bailout system, which, you know, of course, by 2008, it, it was on steroids. It's at a colossal level ever since 2008, where the Fed steps in and uh, it's not multi-billion dollar now, it's multi-trillion dollar bailout programs for Wall Street. Right. Uh, Amazing, really. You were very prescient in that. So you were also a professor at Chapman Law, I noted, and uh, Mm -hmm. associate dean. So that was before you moved to Florida, right? Well, I had been a lawyer in New York City and uh, then went into teaching. And my first teaching job was at the University of Miami Law School. And I was in Miami Mm -hmm. for about three years. Uh, That teaching job was not a tenure track job. So I I ended up moving out west for a tenure track Mm -hmm. appointment at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I was tenured there. And then I made a lateral move to Chapman University in Southern California. I, I will say the whole time I was trying to get back to South Florida. But these... Uh, tenured or tenure track jobs are not easy to, to, to land. There are not a lot of right. openings. Uh, and I think uh, the paper record that I had, the record of scholarship uh, of being very critical of Wall Street was not helpful prior to the 2008 financial collapse. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of these law schools are dominated by liberal faculty members. But when it comes to the, the slots for faculty to teach uh, banking law, corporate law, international trade law, the, the areas that I, I was specializing in, uh, those faculty want to just sort of reproduce themselves. And they have uh, been dominated by sort of a University of Chicago law and economics, free market uh, kind of approach for many years. And I think that hasn't really changed uh, even after the financial collapse all that much. I mean, they've all sort of bought into this neoist. And I say neoist because I look at the neoliberals and neocon as the same group. They've all bought into the same sort of arguments about privatization, about the free markets being the moral mm-hmm. arbiter of, of public goods, et cetera. And it's a, it's a really bankrupt argument. And it's amazing to me that they're still continuing on and pushing this forward, even in the face of all the failed policy that we're looking at. Um, did you work on any public policy initiatives while you were here, here in California or no? Oh, yes, I I did. And in fact, while I was there, that's when I was appointed by Bernie Sanders to be on this advisory committee. How to fix the economy and create prosperity. With stakes so high, how on earth can Democrats and Republicans work together, one might ask? Well, independent Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont joins us right now. He serves on the budget and joint economic committees, among others. Senator, thank you for being here. Uh, You know, here's just one example, speaking of of what the topic is here. This week, Republican leaders in Congress sent a, a letter to the Federal Reserve 
Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke. And, and if you see, you've seen it, it says, respectfully, we submit that the board should resist further extraordinary intervention in the U.S. economy. We have serious concerns that further intervention by the Federal Reserve could exacerbate current problems or further harm the U.S. economy. You see the House Speaker, the Majority Leader, all uh, on the byline there. What's the perception here? Is this a veiled threat of limiting Fed powers? Should the GOP take control in, in a couple of years here? Well, what I find amusing about that is uh, during the Wall Street crisis, uh, not only did the Congress provide uh, some $800 billion in bailouts uh, to Wall Street, but as you know, and, and we got this information out as a result of a provision I put in the Dodd-Frank bill, that Fed lent out $16 trillion, $16 trillion, to every major financial institution in this country, to large corporations, to wealthy American individuals, and to central banks all over the world. I don't recall that the Republicans were then saying, gee, the Fed is overreaching. That was only $16 trillion. Clearly, what the Republicans are about is protecting the interest of the wealthy. Do, but do you, think do you think they're making a, a threat here to uh, Ben Bernanke and the Fed here, uh, perhaps challenging the very fundamental idea of what they're doing right now? Yes, I do think they're making a threat. As you know, uh, the function of the Fed is to help deal with inflation as well as to deal with unemployment. In my view, the Fed should be much more aggressive in dealing with unemployment. I would propose that they do for small businesses who can create jobs in this country what they did for large financial institutions and make low interest loans available to them. A hundred billion, not a lot of money, and low interest loans could create a million jobs. So yes, I do think the Republicans and, are threatening, and I think that's and, unfortunate. And Senator, they're, they're also saying, though, that the Fed is limited, really, by the options that they have right now. They should focus on things such as uh, keeping dollars spent on foreign goods and oil here in the United States instead. Therefore, they're saying creating more demand and then jobs. That's why they're not uh, supporting any other sort of action from the Fed right now. What, what do well, you say to I that? I am deeply moved by um, the Republican leadership's concern about keeping jobs in America when they have for years, along with Democrats, supported trade policies uh, which have resulted in the loss of millions of jobs being outsourced to China and other countries uh, and lowering the standard of living uh, of American workers. So I think there's a bit of hypocrisy in their great concern. There, are, there is tax policy right now, as you know which literally provides tax breaks for those corporations who shut down in America and go abroad. So I think, again, what the Republicans are doing is telling us which side they are on. Look, the middle class is collapsing in America. Poverty is increasing. Median family income is going down. Uh, working families are suffering. What we need is a massive jobs program to put millions of people back to work and clearly that is not on the Republicans' radar screen. Quick one here, Senator. You're a strong supporter of President Obama's plan to tax the wealthy and the very people, the people that the Republicans are calling, quote, job creators. No. With this kind of opposition that you are alluding to right now, is the president's plan really symbolic? I mean, what parts can get no. passed? I think a lot can get passed. I think every poll that I have seen 
suggests that the American people understand that creating jobs is the most important thing that we have to do. Every poll that I have seen believes that at a time when the rich are getting richer and their effective tax rate is the lowest in decades, they should be asked to pay more in taxes so that we can create jobs and help out with deficit reduction. So what the president is doing is speaking to what the vast majority of the American people want. His job now and all of our jobs is to rally the American people and say to these people, in Congress, these Republican leaders who are there to represent large corporations and Wall Street, sorry, you're going to have to pay attention to the middle class. You're going to have to work with us to create jobs. Senator Bernie Sanders, thank you. Thank you. I, I think um, Joseph Stiglitz and, you know, that was one initiative. I also was working with a um, local Teamster official out there in Orange, Patrick Kelly. And we were lobbying uh, the L.A. mayor at the time, Villaraigosa. Uh, who at that time was the head of the National Conference of Mayors. So it was a, a high visibility role. And in his inaugural speech as the president of the National Conference of Mayors, he talked about the need for uh, infrastructure investment to be the top priority for the mayors. And we came to his office with a proposal um, that we were hoping he'd get behind, where the Federal Reserve would essentially do a quantitative easing program for Main Street uh, to help fund infrastructure the way it was you know, finding trillions of dollars for, for Wall Street, uh, if it just could push a fraction of that money into state infrastructure banks, it would really jumpstart the economy and build a lot of infrastructure. Now, we uh, got blocked in the mayor's office by the finance people, who all seem to have Morgan Stanley backgrounds. And it really points to what you were alluding to earlier, that you've got these, one is this privatization model. And if you want to privatize infrastructure, the best way to get there is to have austerity for the public sector. You don't want the right. Federal Reserve to step in or the Treasury to step in and to really help finance infrastructure. You want to strangle it a bit. You want austerity, mm -hmm. and that'll lead to privatization. And mm -hmm. we were going to L.A. City Hall. We went there for several meetings, and uh, I was becoming quite frustrated that there was really no forward progress on our uh, proposals. And and there weren't, like, real reasons um, uh, justifications for not moving forward on it. And at the same time, um, what popped up right around LA City Hall was an Occupy Los Angeles encampment. Occupy Wall Street! Occupy Los Angeles! We are the 99%! We are the 99%! New York! San Francisco! Portland! And I just realized um, that's where um, that's where I belong, uh, not inside L.A. City Hall pleading uh, to politicians that weren't going to see the light, but out there on the street. And I took part in Occupy L.A. I taught um, a, a workshop on Wall Street and the Federal Reserve uh, at the Occupy encampment in L.A. Talk a little bit about that more. So um, were you the only person doing the workshop or did you have others involved? I actually had to come down to Occupy LA several days while, while um, that was going on. And, and I um, went through, they had the two main um, protests where we walked through all of the uh, banks, the route around the banks that yeah, participated exactly. in that. It was, it was a large, large post protest. Yes, absolutely. I was there. That's really nice to know that you were there at the same time. That's great. You know, they had what was called um, a people's 
collective or something, a university, people's right. university. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, okay. And the seminars they'd have there were quite varied. I mean, they had a nurse who talked about how to um, take care of people who are wounded, how to deal with tear gas, things like that. Um, there were other seminars uh, or workshops that people were teaching that uh, dealt with uh, some of the substantive issues, you could say. But I didn't know. I, I wasn't aware of anyone else who was actually teaching about the structure of the Federal Reserve and the role of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw an awful lot of signs there to end the Fed. Uh, they had a, a big display. I don't know if you remember. Um, I do. I, I asked, yeah, uh, an end the Fed display, right? And and I used mm -hmm. to say that, uh, of course, that came from Ron Paul's agenda. He had a book called End the Fed. And I used to say that I was for mending the Fed, that it should really be um, – completely owned and directed by the public sector. It shouldn't have these private uh, capture uh, mm -hmm. aspects to it. I actually agree with that because one of the, the one of the main conversations I find myself having with the Ron Paul faction is they don't seem to have anything to replace it with and they have no argument for um, devaluation or uh, deflation if that occurs. Yes, you're absolutely right. They're, they, they say that you could replace the Fed by just having the gold standard. And there's been an awful yeah. lot of, um, you know, reasons to believe that historically when you have a gold standard, you might have decades of deflation. You're absolutely right. You've actually been very vocally opposed to bad trade deals like the TPP, which I agree with. I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about NAFTA, though, because there's some embedded part of NAFTA regulation that's been very detrimental, not just to the United States, but also to Mexico. We all want to talk about the job losses in the United States. But Mexico has also seen uh, job losses, and they've also seen lower wages as a result of this trade deal. Um, one of the things that's buried in there are the complex, what I would call the complex rules of origins, and also language that in the interstate dispute settlement uh, provisions, which really gives large handouts to multinational corporations and what they can and can't do if they are negligent. Um, can you speak to these two issues from a legal perspective? Well, especially the investor state dispute settlement provisions, I can. Uh, and I have written about them in the past. And uh, it's really what got me into the race against Wasserman Schultz in many ways. Uh, in the middle of 2015, as the TPP issue started to heat up, the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, debates, I tried to contact Wasserman Schultz's office. I called there. Uh, I, I had no intention of running for public office or anything. Uh, I simply called because I asked if I could speak with whoever was uh, handling the TPP issue for her. Uh, as a, a tenured law professor at the only law school in her district uh, and somebody who's been writing about these investor state dispute settlement provisions, I, I thought they would have welcomed the discussion. And I was told to email somebody. I emailed uh, that legislative aid twice, never got any response. So I ended up out of frustration uh, joining the Citizens Trade Campaign uh, protest outside of her Pembroke Pines office, and uh, we were uh, we went on several protests, and uh, we were disappointed that Wasserman Schultz was the only Democratic member of Florida's House delegation to vote to fast track the TPP, and we researched it and saw that she had been taking a lot of money, three hundred thirty thousand dollars from corporate interests that that wanted the TPP. Yeah. And uh, at that point, we, uh, when I say we, these folks at the Citizens Trade Campaign, labor and environmental activists, uh, we started to brainstorm and we thought, you know, the Democrats will keep doing this until they get challenged in primaries because they've got safe seats, gerrymandered seats. Wasserman Schultz isn't going to lose to a Republican. 
we got to find somebody to challenge her. And we started right, right. kind of going down a list of possible uh, state legislators or local mayors, and we couldn't find anyone who would challenge her because she happened to be the head of the Democratic National Committee. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, over the course of some months, uh, I organized and, and conducted a couple of public forums on the TTP where we focused on this investor state dispute settlement provision. And um, these labor folks started to put the bug in my ear that I should be the one to run that. And they convinced me to walk that plank. But you take a look at these investor rights provisions and uh, they're yeah. terrible. They, they allow the biggest multinational they are terrible. corporation. Yeah. And, and who are they litigating in front of it? These are not American courts. It's a loss of sovereignty. These are claims brought before arbitration panels that are the judges on those panels are the corporate lawyers who have written these trade agreements in the first place and who represent mm-hmm. these major corporations. So um, you, you do find that in NAFTA. Uh, you find it in, in dozens of bilateral investment treaties that the United States has entered mm-hmm. into with other countries. And uh, there's another feature of NAFTA, which I think has been terrible for the Mexican people. And, you know, it liberalizes trade in agriculture without the U.S. to cut its subsidies for the corn industry. And, you know, the subsidies for corn in this country are enormous. You you find corn in everything, corn syrup and everything from ketchup to to sodas, right? Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And and cereals. Uh, The corn syrup is everywhere. Well, the corn was the basis of the Mexican economy for centuries and even into the 20th century. And when NAFTA came into effect, it had the effect of throwing about six or 700,000 Mexican corn farmers uh, out of work. And when you add their families, that's about two to three million people were affected right off the bat from just NAFTA's liberalization of of the corn industry uh, combined with Mm -hmm. American subsidies for, for, for its giant corn makers. And um, where do those three million people then go? They essentially yeah. they move up to the Mexican-U.S. border. They work in maquiladoras, these uh, you know uh, factories, assembly plants, and um, that that provided some decent work for a little while, but very unsafe conditions and very low pay. And then once we allowed China into the World Trade Organization and had permanent normal trading relationship with China and, and got rid of the multi-fiber agreement that protected textiles. Once that happened, um, you know, the maquiladora has just started to collapse as well. So um, this trade liberalization has not been uh, real good for the Mexican people or I think for most of the American people. Um, and it's not that I'm against trade relationships. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. I just think that there needs to be more of a balance. When you take a look at the kind of liberalization of trade that occurred after World War II, they were also coupled mm-hmm. with major foreign aid programs. Foreign aid is such a bad name in our lifetime, but you take a look at what it accomplished with the Marshall Plan. Not only did it help rebuild uh, devastated countries uh, throughout Europe, but it also was a big boost to American industry. So um, there's lots of reasons to think that you could have somewhat liberalized trade as long as it's sequenced well uh, with uh, the proper type of foreign aid programs. And as long as you don't uh, deregulate uh, hot money flows, stocks and bonds between countries, we've gone in the complete opposite direction, though. And, and I think it's been boom and bust cycles for, for decades now, and not just in the United States, but, but all over the globe. Yeah, no, there's no two ways about that. Um, and you brought up the China uh, situation. That was actually my next question. Um, how has been admitting China to the World Trade Organization and granting them the permanent normal trade status has been detrimental to the country. That's the first part. And the second part is, 
What is your opinion on uh, Trump's tariffs? Mm -hmm. Well, these are good questions. Um, you know, I, and I've written a bit about China in the past. Um, to me, what was shocking on one level was the kind of liberalization uh, that uh, we were uh, engaging in between the mm -hmm. first world and the third world, between very advanced industrialized economies with relatively high wages, high labor standards, and environmental standards, um, with a third world country. And NAFTA was the first one of these. Uh, Mexico really was a third world country. But, and so what does that lead to? It's what economists call a race to the bottom. Well, mm -hmm. what's further to the bottom from Mexico? It was China. And when you open yeah. up to a country of, you know, what, one and a half billion people or more population, and, uh, you know, there's no labor unions to speak of in any real sense of the word because they're all controlled by the party. It's a one-party communist dictatorship with a terrible, terrible mm -hmm. human rights record that, you know, mm -hmm. we've managed to paper over in the last couple of decades uh, because the Chinese leadership wears the Western businesses. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's no freedom there. It's a very repressive country. And um, we never would have uh, entered into those kinds of trade relationships with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Right. Now, you know, I'm not advocating Cold War with China and having hostilities. But by the same token, um, trade should be used as a carrot and stick to help try to incentivize mm -hmm. a country like China to liberalize politically. Instead, you know, we've had this race to the bottom, and the United States is not just worse off for it in terms of, let's say, socioeconomic conditions, but I think our political system has um, been corrupted so much uh, over the course of the last two decades that people might hear my kind of argument now and say, well, we're so dirty in this country, we don't respect human rights or the rights of our own citizens, so what's the big deal of trading freely with a country like China now? Hmm. No, there's and, some truth to that. And, uh, you know, as far as Trump's tariffs, you know, look, I think it's a very populist move. It's going to appeal to a lot of American workers who feel that the, mm -hmm. uh, the government has not done anything to protect them. They, they protect intellectual property rights. They protect right. Wall Street banks. But American manufacturing jobs get, you know, sold down the river. Um, you take a look at China. Well, they do subsidize industry in a way that we don't. Uh, they do uh, keep their currency, or they have in the past kept their currency undervalued to have a competitive advantage. So how do you have free trade um, under those conditions? So I certainly understand the inclination of Trump to start right. um, raising tariffs as a real possibility. Um, you don't want a full-blown trade war. You want it to be part of a, a greater negotiation where the Chinese would presumably have to uh, have a more balanced trade stance with the United States and import more from the United States than it does. You know, the irony is mm -hmm. that it was Mao, uh, you know, the former communist dictator of China, Mao Zedong, who uh, used to talk about international trade in terms of what he called balanced equivalence. Uh, in other words, balancing your trade and not having a trade deficit or a trade surplus. And right. much different than the kind of um, uh, system that we have now where the United States has an enormous trade deficit. Um, the Chinese uh, have had large trade surpluses. And the, the liberal economic answer you hear in this country is, well, these trade deficits we have are good for the consumer. And it is true. Yeah. You can go to yeah. Target or Costco. You could buy a lot of cheap goods. But, you know, we wear more than one hat. We're not just consumers. We're also workers. We also need to right. work to 
earn an income. And what good is it if it lowers our prices for consumers if it is hollowing out our, our economy and our, our jobs markets at the same time? Bingo. And, you know, that's the salient point that they always leave off the argument. We are uh, mainly a consumer-driven economy here in the United States. And my worry at this point is the income equality is becoming so severe because of all of these pressures that at mm -hmm. some point, you've, when you've decimated that, and there's nobody left to sell widgets to, it will affect everything, not just the 99%, but the 1% as well. And I know they're sort of counting on um, foreign global markets to pick up pick up sales where they're where they're losing them here in the United States, but eventually that dries out too. I mean, this. I'm sorry. Uh, one thing that Elizabeth Warren points out, of course, is that uh, one way the system has managed to sustain itself uh, and protect itself from this contradiction of stagnant incomes. Uh, and to still have a consumer-driven economy is to uh, mm -hmm. provide an awful lot of debt to the consumers. Consumer debt, credit card debt, student debt, and that keeps the system rolling forward. But of course, mm -hmm. debt is like a, a rope around the neck of millions of consumers now uh, who will mm -hmm. have a tough time servicing that debt for many years and becoming homeowners. And um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a real sustainable solution, it seems to me. No, it's not. You know, and everybody wants to look at the unemployment rate or the jobs reports, and they want to say the economy is healthy, but that's not the salient part. Yes, that's true, but the but the problem is the jobs that have been generated are so low pay compared to what a lot of folks used to have that it's a you're right on. economy. You're, you're, you're right on. I, I got to tell you, Tina, I, I've been saying that this is a good economy. It has been a good economy for 10 years for Wall Street. And for mm, yeah. uh, yeah. say the top for the top one tenth of one percent, it's unbelievably great. And even for the top right. two or three percent, it's probably pretty good. But for most Americans, for the vast majority of Americans, this is year ten of an economic depression, mm -hmm. jobs depression, and the unemployment rate, the official rate of four and a half percent or whatever it is, is just a complete fantasy. Tens of millions of yeah, Americans have dropped out of the labor market. They're discouraged workers. Right. They stopped looking. They're working two or three part-time consulting jobs, uh, dreaming of uh, a real job with real stability. Uh, I don't mean to say those part-time jobs aren't real, but they, they, they don't provide the kind of stability and the kind of uh, compensation right. levels people really need and deserve. You've got so many people with advanced degrees driving for Uber. And whether it's yeah. millennials who 18 to 34-year-olds are more likely to be living at home with their parents than on their own, or baby boomers seen their, their retirement savings uh, deteriorate and uh, age discrimination against them and terrible opportunities. This is, I think it's a real depression that we've been in. And, and unfortunately, it's not reported that way because of, you know, a, a fictitious job uh, unemployment number. That's right. And, you know, last year, a lot of... Um a report came out that completely was ignored by the media. Most of the new wealth that was generated in 2016, over 80% of it, went to the top 1%. Mm -hmm. This is a very sick, sick economy. So you can tell me that the economy has expanded, but it's where it's expanding that's problematic. You know, and right. it, what really bothers me is you've got both sides of the aisle pretty much defending this, and very few people aware of how, how uh, bad the problem is because they don't get the information that they need. They just know that they're in a bad position. I can't find a job that pays me well enough. And Trump, and I've been saying this for a long time, Trump is not the disease. He's a symptom of the disease. 
Yes. And this is why the tariff situation is so interesting to me because on his behalf, this was a smart move. He made he he gave a massive handout to corporations in this last tax re, tax reform bill, and mm-hmm. now to counterbalance that, he's going after these tariffs because this is handing something to the working class because they they're they're not realizing how devastating this tax bill was yet. So he's going to mm-hmm. give them a carrot, and that's going to lead them along. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? I do. I so, think it's true. And in the meantime, um, what is your opinion on fixing um, – so we have – let me back up. We have a problem – another problem that I think is uh, very, very deep is a lot of the multinational co- corporations chase down countries in which they don't have to pay any taxes. So, you know, one year it's Ireland, the next year it's Panama. This has been an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. But the problem is is they can't repatriate the money back in without paying taxes. So they go to Congress every five years, every four years, and they say to Congress, well, we'd love to bring back billions and billions of dollars that we're holding offshore, but, you know, we can't really afford to pay taxes on it. What can Mm -hmm. you do for us? And then Congress turns around and they draft a bill that basically says they can repatriate the money at, you know, 4% or whatever it is. And this is like this revolving door that's been going on for years and years. Um, And and of course, (laughs) what can we do about that? Well, Congress could, of course, pass legislation saying they must repatriate the profits and they'll be taxed at 35% or 20%. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they could require it. And if companies try to evade it, put IRS resources to work investigating that. Cut off those companies mm-hmm. from corporate subsidies, from even contracting with the federal government. Uh, you know, the federal government puts out 3 to $4 trillion, I think, of contracts every year now. Uh, so right. Why play that game and, and even accept the premise that they, they can't? No, they're saying they won't repatriate the profits. Well, make it a legal requirement. If they want to do business in the United States, if they want to retain their charters in the United States, uh, if they want to do business with the federal government, they absolutely have to repatriate the profits and not at not a tax rates of 4%. That's, that's absolutely outlandish. It's asinine. Yeah, it is outlandish. Yeah. And I think that you're right on that. And it's a win-win for that because the money is just sitting in these offshore accounts. They're not able to use it. So it's not to their benefit either. You know what I'm saying? Right. So yes. it's high time that Congress actually did put their foot down and say, no, enough is enough. But I, I, you know, I'm guessing the reason they don't is because they're bought. Which brings yes. us to my next question. Citizens United, this is the other big problem that we're looking at. Um, there's been a push to put a 28th Amendment onto the Constitution. Obviously, when you put an amendment on, you need to um, have the two-thirds hurdle of a vote. I think it's doable because I think people are angry enough. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is something that could potentially happen? What's your legal opinion on that? Well, uh, I've been for this move to amend for many years, and um, uh, I think it's needed. I guess I'm, uh, I hate to say pessimistic, but a constitutional amendment mm-hmm. is real tough to get through. Um, yeah. Uh, Congress that's pretty much bought and paid for by these corporate interests. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that, well, let me just say I'm open to the idea of passing legislation to overturn Citizens United and including in that legislation a provision that would strip the Supreme Court of its appellate jurisdiction over that issue, uh, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely allowed under Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution that Congress can regulate the appellate um, jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Now, some folks will say, well, that's rather harsh. That not that a violation of the separation of 
powers doctrine that Congress will be telling the courts they can't rule on the constitutionality of a congressional act. And, you know, I understand that argument, but why is Article 3, Section 2 in that Constitution? It seems to me the founders put it in there for the rare type of instance when the court itself mm-hmm. has gone off the tracks. And I think the court has gone off the tracks on Citizens United and on this whole line. Oh, of yeah. You know, not only are corporations people with First Amendment rights, but then um, uh, money is equated with speech. And it, it absolutely neutralizes the power of Congress to protect itself. And uh, this is a battle that goes all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the early progressive era in trying to keep corporate money out of our politics. And instead, we're at the complete opposite extreme now, where politicians have, and the courts have thrown up their hands and said, well, that's just the world we live in now. Corporations own everybody. Yeah, you know, I agree with you on the free speech issue. If free speech is supposed to be free and equitable, how could it be money? You know, it just doesn't seem, on a very superficial premise level, this doesn't make sense to me, but that's the argument they're making. Um, I was very also interested in last week we had Justice uh, ex-SCOTUS judge John Paul Stevens came out and made an argument or made the case for um, repealing the Second Amendment, which is is like slaying a sacred cow. I was really surprised to see this. And I think if you kind of went through his argument, what I what I deduced from it was that what he was saying is before the Heller decision, you had a very limited scope on the Second Amendment. And then post the Heller decision, it, it became an individual right sort of a thing that yes. took off in a large way from the NRA. Did you by any chance read his op-ed? And if so, did you have an opinion on it? I only read of his op-ed. I, I have not read the okay. actual op-ed yet. Uh, but certainly you bringing it up uh, will motivate me uh, after this call yeah. to read it. Uh, I, I did read of it. And, uh, you know, of course, just like we were talking about with the move to amend, uh, how realistic is it to uh, repeal the Second Amendment uh, mm-hmm. when you can't even get Congress to legislate on uh, assault rifles, you know, uh, right, the right. that's owned by the gun lobby, it seems, or at least enough of members of key committees are owned by the gun lobby to prevent uh, legislation from moving forward. Um, uh, certainly, mm-hmm. I would like to see the Second Amendment interpreted in more of its, I think, original um, uh, intent, which was that uh, it, it was not really uh, an individual right that was cut off completely from uh, the militias, which is why there's that militia clause in there to begin with. Even if it's an individual right, the state should be able to legislate um, the, you could say, the, the regulate the, the training and uh, scope of that individual right, even if you looked at it as an individual right. And people have a, have a tendency to romanticize um, the history of, of guns in uh, the making of America, so to speak, in the frontier. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this history came out during the litigation, that, uh, that the Heller case, um, where historians were pointing out that in the old frontier West, uh, when people uh, would ride into a, a town, they didn't walk into saloons with their firearms loaded on their holsters. They actually had to first stop off at the, the deputies, the sheriff's office, uh, and check in their weapons there, leave them there, mm-hmm. sign them over, mm-hmm. and they could pick them up when they were leaving town. But they weren't supposed to walk around the streets of this town and the saloons and everything right. else carrying firearms. Uh, so there's been a lot more restrictions in the past than there are now. And, you know, I understand people um, 
uh, feel the need to protect themselves. And, you know, I, I certainly can appreciate that in this society that we live in. Uh, but it shouldn't be as easy to just walk into a store, put a credit card down, and get these lethal weapons. There should be some kind of uh, training right. and certification involved. It's a lot harder to get a law degree. It's a lot harder to get a driver's license or get, and get a, a lethal firearm. Now, this is true. I mean, and the irony of the fact that in many of the states they have the loosest gun laws, you have blue laws still, which is like, yeah. okay, I can go in and buy a beer, like is like really, you know, torture, but I can just go in and buy a gun. I just, I don't know. There's no, there's no sense to a lot of what, what the conversation is surrounding guns. It's really gotten more extreme. You know, now you have the NRA basically giving up ideas that are crazy to me, like the, uh, the, the nap blankets that are supposed to serve as as protection from bullets. Have you seen this for the kids? Yes, yes, I, I did see that. I, I mean, yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny. I, I, I talk about two kind of reforms that would change the system quickly. And, and one would be to take corporate money out of politics. And if you took corporate money out of politics, suddenly the NRA and the gun lobby, the, the gun industry, won't have the same kind of clout. And maybe you can have mm -hmm. a real conversation and real compromise on the issue. Um, right. And I think that's the case on many, many different issues around this country, that because of the influence of corporate money in our politics, it skews um, the, the range of what's politically feasible. Um, the other reform would be a full employment economy. I, I think uh, if we had a real New Deal with public works programs, public jobs programs, where the federal government acted as the employer of last resort, it would solve an mm -hmm. awful lot of other social problems. And you see the correlation all the time that as you have greater economic deprivation and joblessness um, and income inequality, you've got shorter life expectancy, higher levels of homicide, suicide, domestic assault, uh, things like that, which um, would, I think, start repairing themselves if people had productive work uh, that, that paid a decent living. Um, but I, I, I've got to say, and this goes back to the ballot destruction of my own case, that mm -hmm. you can have that campaign finance reform, and it won't mean a thing if the way that we're counting the ballots is corrupt. Uh, what, what, I, what I am now convinced of in light of the experience I've had and I've seen around the country is that um, the electronic voting machines are just too flawed. Um, Madam Chair, um, in the U.S. today, the top 1% own about 38% of the financial wealth of America. The bottom 60% own 2.3%. One family, the Walton family, is worth over $140 billion. That's more wealth than the bottom 40% of the American people. In recent years, we have seen a huge increase in the number of millionaires and billionaires, while we continue to have the highest rate of childhood poverty uh, in the industrialized world. Despite this, um, as many of my Republican friends talk about the oppressive uh, Obama economic policies, in the last year, Charles and David Koch struggled under these policies, and their wealth increased by $12 billion in one year, uh, despite the oppressive Obama economic policies. Um, in terms of income, 95% of no, new income generated in this country in the last year went to the top 1%. Now, a study which I've just introduced into the record uh, by two uh, professors 
uh, from Princeton University, Professor Martin Gillens and Northwestern University Professor Benjamin Page, basically suggest that while historically we have considered our society to be a capitalist democracy, we may now have entered into a phase where we are an oligarchic form of society. In your judgment, given the enormous power held by the billionaire class and their political representatives, are we still a capitalist democracy or have we gone over into an oligarchic form of society in which incredible economic and political power now rests with the billionaire class? So all of the statistics on inequality that you've cited are ones that greatly concern me. And I think for the same reason that you're concerned about them, um, they can shape the, uh, determine the ability of different groups um, to participate equally in a democracy and have grave effects on social stability over time. And so uh, I don't know what to call our system or how to, I prefer not to um, give labels, but uh, there's no question that we've had a trend toward growing inequality. And I personally find it a very worrisome trend that deserves the attention of policymakers. Thank you. I mean, I, I think the point that the professors are making and, and others have made is that there comes a point where the billionaire class has so much political power, where the Koch brothers are now, because of Citizens United, able to buy and sell politicians. They have so much political power. At what point is that reversible? Um, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit more about um, the 2011 Bernie Sanders um, committee that you served on on, on reforming mm -hmm. the Fed. Yeah. Um, is anything still going on with that? Did you, uh, as a group, did you come up to come up with any great <laughs> solutions that are viable well, that we didn't discuss? Well, well, Bernie really tasked us with two questions. And the first was, how should the governance structure of the Federal Reserve be reformed? And um, I think there was a, a pretty good broad consensus um, among a lot of the committee um, that the problem with Federal Reserve governance is that so many of the decisions are made by this open market committee that are stacked with presidents of regional Federal Reserve banks. Those presidents are selected right. by private boards of directors dominated by the big commercial banks. So if you could break that type of capture by the private banking industry, that's what's needed. I think Bernie did introduce legislation uh, based on our work uh, that would have, I think, uh, limited the ability of the commercial bank members of each Federal Reserve District to uh, select the uh, directors uh, of uh, the board of directors that then go on and select the president. But I don't think much came of that legislation after it was introduced. The second yeah. um, issue, uh, broadly speaking, that he tasked us with was how should the Federal Reserve's mandate or powers be reformed uh, to deal with uh, the challenges of our economy. And this was 2011. The financial crisis was still very recent. And it was really a period, mm -hmm. I think, of, of profound austerity. That's still with us. I think it was just maybe more acute in 2010, 2011, when something like 700,000 school teachers, K-12 in this country, lost their jobs, um, and mm -hmm. not to mention firefighters and police as well. Um, and there was not so much consensus on the committee uh, on that issue. There were some economists who thought, well, you take a look, the Fed right now is paying banks something like a quarter of a percentage point for their excess reserves, 
were to charge those banks for their excess reserves, it would incentivize the banks to lend out those reserves um, into productive loans. I think that was a small incremental type of a proposal that a lot of people could agree on. The more far-reaching proposals, and I was among the group that was pushing these more far-reaching proposals, would have been to mandate that the Fed have a QE program for Main Street. It could look like the Fed um, making low-interest loans to state infrastructure banks or actually pumping capital into the state infrastructure bank by purchasing uh, warrants, non-voting stock, or something like that. Uh, it could look like the Fed buying up mortgages, as the Fed was buying up mortgage-backed securities, but when buying up these mortgage-backed securities, buy them up only on the condition that the mortgages are going to be modified uh, to lower the interest burden on homeowners and uh, you know try to deal with foreclosures mm -hmm. on that level. The Fed could be buying up student debt, creating a moratorium. You know, well, what good is a moratorium? Essentially, the Fed has bought $4 trillion of assets, a, a, a big chunk of it being mortgage-backed securities, and held it on its books for, you know, the mm -hmm. past 10 years almost. So why not do it with student debt and relieve the burden of, of this entire generation that has over a trillion dollars of student debt? So mm -hmm. we were pushing for that. Bernanke said he did not have the legal authority to do that. As maybe the only lawyer on the committee, I pushed back right away and, and read him Good. chapter and verse of Section 13.3 and, and, and said that of the Federal Reserve Act and, uh, you know, argued with him, basically. We had a disagreement uh, as to what the scope of the Fed's authority was. Uh, I later mm -hmm. bumped into two other Fed governors and had that same discussion, and both of them conceded to me that they thought that uh, the Fed does, in fact, have that authority already to um, hmm. provide uh, loans at low interest rates uh, to non-banks uh, for exigent circumstances uh, or to purchase assets the way it did in the QE programs and to do it for Main Street, but that the Fed politically didn't want to go there because they were afraid of a backlash on Capitol Hill. If the Fed spends yeah. $4 trillion on asset purchases and tens of trillions of dollars on low interest loans to help Wall Street banks and hedge funds, there's no real political pushback on Capitol Hill. But if the Fed were to spend a tiny fraction of that on a QE for Main Street, suddenly it would be accused of picking winners and losers. Which is absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, and I look at the student debt level, and to me this is like the next toxic football that's going to implode and really affect our economy. And it seems to me that they must know this on a certain level, and they just don't simply have the will to try to fix it before it becomes too big of a problem. And I'm not, I'm not understanding why that is the case. You would think that they would look a little bit more bigger picture after the experiences of the last 15 years. What's, what well, do you think is the motivation well, what's the, there? What's the incentive to try to fix the system? The system is working great for the, the wealthiest interest in our society. Right. All right. Yeah, I know you're right. And there's that moral hazard that we've created that if it does implode, the taxpayer yeah. will, will be there to bail them out. So there's really no reason or for them to fear that, I suppose, at this point. It, if we had a stronger democracy rather than a system that looked like an oligarchy or a plutocracy, then maybe there'd be incentives to address these problems um, uh, to prevent a reoccurrence. But I, I don't think this is much right. of a democracy. I'll just add one last point that in my discussions on the committee and with Bernanke, I also pointed out that historically speaking, in the 1930s and 40s, the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks made hundreds of millions of dollars of loans to Main Street businesses. 
not to banks, mm. but to industrial types of businesses. And um, it still has the authority to do that on the books, and it just chooses not to. Mm-hmm. Now, that's so an interesting and valid point. What did, did Bernanke have any sort of counterpoint to that, or he just kind of sort of ignored no, he, it? No, he just sort of had a mantra that he does not believe we have the legal authority to engage in these kinds hmm. of programs, period. Right, and the discussion right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, um, so if somebody wants to donate uh, to your campaign, where should they go? Well, thank you. Thanks for asking that um, because our campaign really is relying on small grassroots uh, donations. We've seen an uptick since I announced I was going to run as an independent, a pretty significant uptick, but we need a lot more resources. Wasserman Schultz, mm-hmm. you know, never really stopped raising money from these corporate PACs. And, uh, and we've been, right. you know, low season, you can say. A lot of ordinary small donors got burnt out from, you know, how bad things turned out in 2016. But they, they are beginning to get reengaged. So folks can go to mm-hmm. TimCanova.com. Uh, and at TimCanova.com, they can make small donations. Right now, we still have the ActBlue platform. And I know a lot of people are critical of ActBlue. We will be transitioning. We're in the process of transitioning over the next couple of weeks. Uh, for those folks who want to donate and um, now and don't want to do it through ActBlue, they can send checks to us, Tim Canova for Congress. Uh, and, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is that folks step up with small donations, but also to share on social media. Uh, you know, we suffer mm-hmm. from a news blackout here. Um, the mainstream media does not want to cover races like ours. They certainly don't want to help people who are challenging incumbents. Um, And uh, if people can share on social media and have conversations with their friends, their loved ones, even people they disagree with, and just tell them about uh, our campaign here and how important it is to unseat somebody like Wasserman Schultz, who's really the epitome of everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party and our political system. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, spreading the word, phone banking for us, all of that. um, Folks can go to TimCanova.com and learn how they can help. Thank you.